Zechariah 12, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And beloved, once more, it is, it is my great privilege and our solemn obligation to remember that this is the holy word of God. This is a word that under God's gracious operations is a word that is even saving. It's a word that we're supposed to understand is infallible, inerrant in every part, perfect in every way and unfading. And so certainly a word that we must give heed to this morning. Zechariah 12 and starting here at the 10th verse. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart, all the families that remain every family apart and their wives apart. Amen. And may the Lord richly bless us from his own word this morning. The prophet, as we said in the midweek, came to a church that was in some sense divided. There were those in her number that remembered, of course, the scourge that came from on high because the people of God under age had rebelled. And so for 70 years they were under, this church was under tokens of God's displeasure. But then in God's grace and in fulfillment of all of his promises, right through the prophets, the Lord had brought them back to the land. But as you remember, as they were brought back to the land, those who remembered the former glory, those who remembered the temple as it once stood, the temple that Solomon had built, Well, when they looked at the foundations of the second temple, they wept because it was indeed a day of small things. This generation was keenly sensible, keenly aware that to rebel against God came at high cost. Their sins had withheld indeed good things from them. But there was another generation, you remember, in the church that never saw the former temple. They themselves were reared in Babylon. And so when they come back to the land of promise, in fulfillment of all that God had promised to the church, they come rejoicing. And when they see that there's a house being built, they rejoice because there they see the instituted worship of God returned. And in the institution returned, they also have a token of God's real presence with his people. Emmanuel really would be fulfilled in a sense for them. But beloved, as these people would come into the land, as the generations of Ezra and Nehemiah and even Zechariah and Haggai remind us, these were, this was a generation that needed to be reminded of the very thing 
the very thing that the former generation knew so well. They needed to be reminded of sin's odiousness, the high cost that sin comes with. And they also, however, needed to be reminded that as they come into the land and as they begin to face all kinds of struggles, they needed to be reminded as well that God, even after a period of great difficulty and under so many tokens of his displeasure, they needed to be reminded that notwithstanding all of these things, God would indeed fulfill his word. And so, Zechariah comes like Haggai before they come to preach these two great themes, the sinfulness of sin and the faithfulness of God. And as I said to you in the midweek in our text, uh, throughout this communion season, we have both themes poignantly set before us. As we come to the 10th verse, you'll notice again the words are, words of gracious intention. I will pour, says the Lord, that is, I will shed or I reveal upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. He will shed or he will reveal to the house of David, to this people, his spirit of grace. That's a phrase that doesn't appear, that word spirit of grace. It does not appear elsewhere in the Old Testament. In the original, it's ruach hain. That is translated literally for us, the spirit of grace. But it's nowhere else. Nowhere else in the scriptures. And that word ruach could be translated elsewhere as it is mind. Or even that aspect of wisdom in man. And I suppose because our translators have in mind what you have in Hebrews 10, that, that this is here referring to the spirit itself. Well, I think we most often take this text to be referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is, to the third person of the Trinity. And so, in, especially, we take this text to be referring to the inward operations of the Spirit of grace uh, that actually produces what we have in this text. But ancient commentators, uh, older men who have looked at this text, have urged, and for good reason, for us to see this in a slightly different way. Really, the text has behind it the idea that this is not so much communicating the work of grace operating in men, but really God's gracious spirit or his gracious intention or disposition. That is, his intention to be merciful. Calvin puts it this way. He says, you could translate it thus. He says, I will pour forth my bowels of mercy. Or, I will open my, my whole heart to show mercy to this people. Or even, my spirit shall be like the spirit of man, which is wont to move him to help the miserable. For good reason, and the original makes this even clearer. The sense is that, that the spirit of God in view here, that spirit of grace is God's gracious intention, his, even his delight and his earnest desire to show this grace to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And beloved, we shouldn't be surprised that this is spoken of here as being poured or shed upon the people. It's given to us expressly in Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That's not our love for God. That is a real revelation of divine love that here in the text we're told is shed abroad 
abroad upon the hearts of his people. The sense here is that this is divine, the divine intention for mercy and grace. But then we're told that with this came also supplications. You could translate that entreaty or prayer. And the word of there is not in the original. The sense in the original is not that that he is describing for us that which is poured upon the people, that is the Spirit itself. He's describing for us something additional that will come upon this house of David and these inhabitants in Jerusalem. This is not a description of that Spirit. This is something additional to it. The sense is that he will pour forth, in the first place, bowels of mercy. And, in addition to that, he will pour forth prayer. That is, they will be sensible of divine mercy, and they will be induced, caused to pray, caused to plead. And so there are two things. They will become keenly aware of the Lord's gracious disposition toward them, and also will be induced to pray, to make entreaty of the Lord. And then we see what follows. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. As we said last Wednesday, this is a sen- there's a sense in which this is a new look, a new kind of perception that these people will have. They've looked upon him before so as to pierce him, but now they will see him in an entirely different light. In fact, this glance that they take, this look that they have, oh, beloved, this leads them to mourn. And so in our text we have those who are styled murderers turned to mourners. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, we see, first of all, that this is indeed a revelation of God's merciful disposition. This is the rise and the fount from which all of God's gracious works in the heart of man flow. The prophet is not telling us what the Spirit of God will do in the heart of man in this first case. He tells us why the Lord God will be gracious at all. That is because he has an earnest desire, a real disposition to show grace. And beloved, we're told here that this is poured forth. It's revealed to them, this grace, this gracious disposition. It's gushed, as it were, shed upon men. And upon whom? Our text tells us that they are those who have pierced the Lord. In its most literal sense, we have to understand, of course, what you have in John 19. Where Christ literally, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, was pierced for his own. And beloved, strikingly, this text tells us that even for Christ's piercers, even for those who would pierce the Lord either literally for some, or those who would pierce the Lord in other ways, as we'll see in a moment's time, the Lord delights to save even them. The Lord delights to save even Christ's piercers. We see this in two ways. Our text brings out to us the rise of the saving grace, but also the reach 
how far this grace extends. And so take the rise first of all. We're told again that this is the spirit of grace that comes. It's God's gracious spirit or his gracious mind, disposition, intention. The sense is, beloved, what you have throughout the scriptures, even as we think about man. You, you see, the Lord is using here the language of accommodation. He, he, he's taking something. As a God who is without parts and passions, He's describing Himself as a man possessed of both to communicate to us some real, some theological truth. And beloved, the truth that He's communicating to here, we can't miss. It's a truth that comes to us that should strike us because of its earnestness. There, there is an aspect in this text, beloved, that I think we quickly overlook. That, that by seeing here a spirit of grace, by God saying he is a gracious spirit toward men, beloved, he's communicating something quite intense. And to understand that, we need to understand how the scriptures even speak about a spirit, I suppose. The spirit of man is described in Second Kings as a blast, translated elsewhere as a wind. He that is slow to anger, says Solomon, is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit, better than that that taketh a city. The the sense is, the spirit of man in the scriptures is described as that most powerful aspect of him. It's something that is internal to him, and is something, as, as, as Proverbs 16 tells us, requires incredible strength to master. The most powerful and the most intense part of the man. And beloved, you see this too in Isaiah 26. With my soul have I desired thee in the night, says the church to the Lord. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. The sense is because this soul is so disposed. The inmost part of the person is so disposed intensely to the Lord. That, beloved, their search for the Lord will prevent the morning. They will be there and in earnest. Because their spirit is so inclined. And strikingly, beloved, in this text we're told that this spirit that the Lord has of grace toward his own is one indeed of grace. This mighty, this internal power, this disposition Beloved, he says, is gracious toward his people. And beloved, this shouldn't surprise us. This kind of language is used all throughout the scriptures to describe the Lord's gracious intention. Take Jeremiah 31. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he, my, is he a pleasant child? And note how the Lord describes himself. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. The Lord describes himself as one who has bowels that are moved, even troubled for Ephraim. Ephraim who had so often spurned the Lord. Ephraim who killed the prophets, instituted false worship. Ephraim, he says, is an object of my great desire and grace, such that, he says, my bowels are troubled for him. And beloved, throughout the scriptures, believers rest upon this kind of thing. In Isaiah 63, we're told, there the people pray, zeal and strength, the sounding of thy bowels and thy mercies towards us. 
They say these things are real in God. This real and this intense desire that they would know His mercy and His grace. Beloved, the people of God hang upon that reality. And so, beloved, what do we learn? We learn that God saves sinners from a mighty and gracious disposition. A mighty and a gracious intention. I think this is perhaps one of those themes that we think we know so well. The grace of God toward his own is certainly something that we often have on our lips. But beloved, if we had faith, if we had greater faith, we would understand we've never plumbed the depths of what we have in this text. That God is mercifully disposed out of a free, free grace toward his people. And beloved, we are a people who so often limit how deep that grace really is, both its source and its application. But we shouldn't. The scriptures are very clear, aren't they? When the Lord God speaks of himself, here's how he describes himself. He says that he is a God who pardons. No, That's not how the Lord describes himself. Either in Micah or in Nehemiah, he is the God of pardons. It's as though he is saying it's part of his name. He's pleased to be called the God of pardons. The God of forgiveness. In other words, beloved, he's pleased to be invoked as the Almighty. As the Eternal. As the everlasting, as the holy God, but he's also pleased to be invoked in those texts as the God of pardon. Pleased, as it were, to take it on as his very name. And beloved, you you see this so powerfully given to us in the example when you have Moses asking to see his glory. Moses would see his glory, but this is what's proclaimed first. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the first revelation that Moses will have as he looks to see the glory of God. This is how the Lord God himself proclaims. This is first in order, says the Lord. And why? Why would the Lord emphasize such a thing? Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Beloved, meditate just for a moment on what in that text These gracious revelations that even God himself would be pleased to be called the God of forgiveness flows from a real delight in God to show mercy. That the Lord Jehovah, the eternal and the everlasting God, is a God who would first have sinners see, as he showed Moses, that he is a God who is abundant in his grace. And beloved, how delighted is the Lord. In Jeremiah 31 and in our own text, the Lord accommodates 
accommodates our own frail minds to describe to us something about this gracious intention. In Jeremiah 31, it's the bowels of mercy moved toward Ephraim. In Zechariah 12, in our text, it is this spirit of grace, this this willingness and intention to show mercy. But all, beloved, are supposed to communicate to us that there is a real and a powerful disposition in the Lord to show mercy, to show grace to his own. And what kind of grace is shown? If this is the case, if God is so inclined, what, what kind of mercy should we expect? Well, the psalmist tells us that the Lord's mercy is great under the heavens. Psalm 57. And so, beloved, you and I are supposed to think of something that is far beyond us in our comprehension. A depth of grace, a height of grace that is beyond, beyond our reckoning. Because our God delighteth in mercy. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. In Psalm 108, as though, as though we should think that the heavens are too limited, that it's too limited to say that his mercy only reaches the heavens, the psalmist says, thy mercy is great above the heavens. Beloved, you see how the Lord God reveals himself to his people. He is a God who is really inclined to do them good. And the good that he would do them, the mercy that he would show them, is beyond their reckoning, really. Beloved, there is a depth here that simply cannot be sounded. There is a depth that simply cannot be fathomed. And so, Christian, the text reads, Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous. And mercy. Not restrained. Not miserly. But plenteous in mercy. Unto all them that call upon him. Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. With the Lord there is mercy and with him is plenteous redemption. Psalm 130. Do you see, beloved, how the Spirit of God is communicating to us the plenteousness of this mercy? Just as it communicates to us in accommodated language, the earnest and the intent desire that the people of God would know His grace, it also comes to us, the Word of God comes with all of these superlatives, speaking to us of the great grace and the great mercy that would be shown. And this leads, of course, the apostle to say, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Beloved, the loving kindness that the Lord God has an intention to show his people is a loving kindness that is better than life. In the garden... In the garden, when Adam was tempted, he was tempted with the idea that God was not so good. Not so good. Miserly, in fact, in his goodness toward man. That somehow the Lord God had withheld something that was truly good to Adam. That was the temptation. 
Beloved, you and I this morning are tempted in the same way. That God is not so good. That he is not so gracious as his word proclaims him to be. I don't know if you realize, beloved, this morning, but when you and I come to the Lord's Supper, that is one of the things that must die in us. A reservedness about the goodness and the grace of God. A seeking to qualify what the word of God does not qualify. That toward his people, his intentions really are gracious. And that this grace that he would show them is truly, truly beyond their comprehension. Beloved, that is our struggle. We have so many when we come to the Lord's Supper, but that certainly is one of them. Beloved, would we call the Lord God? Would we call him a liar by doubting what we have clearly in his word? That our God has a real and a gracious intention for his own. As Calvin translates the text, that he indeed has bowels of mercy that he would pour forth upon his own. Beloved, if we believe this, if we see that there is a gracious intention in God to give such great mercy to his own, doesn't that only increase the value of the gift that's given? I mean, this is how you and I deal with each other. If we know that, that even the smallest thing is given by somebody to us from a deep and an earnest love, a real desire and intention to do us good, well, whatever the gift is, it's so more highly esteemed because we know the intention behind it. And here, beloved, all throughout the Word of God, we're told that the grace of God that comes upon His people, these bowels of mercy that are shown, beloved, that should make the gift of grace all the more savory to us. That it came to you not from a miserly God, but a God who had a real disposition a real and a gracious intention toward you, who delighted to show you mercy. But what of the reach of this grace? We're told that this grace would come upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who are the objects of this great grace? Who are the ones to whom God is, is so graciously inclined? Well, to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And if the text simply stopped there, we would not bat an eye. We wouldn't give it really a second thought, would we? But then when he comes and he says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, he is saying that this house of David, these inhabitants in Jerusalem, have in some sense pierced the Lord. This gracious inclination is to those whom the Lord says have pierced him in some sense. Who in the Lord's account are his piercers. And beloved, that should make us stagger, shouldn't it? It should make us stagger, beloved, because we recognize that in the first century we have an aspect of this text that is so very literally fulfilled. 
I mean, you remember. You remember Christ pierced in John 19, but you also remember 50 days, less than two months after the event. Where do you find the apostles preaching? They go to Jerusalem. Not two months after the the city rang out with the cries, crucify Him, His blood be on us and on our children. The apostles are preaching that remission and forgiveness of sins is available through Jesus Christ. And then the text tells us in Acts 2 that those very ones were pricked in their heart. The Lord saved even those who just two months before, less than two months before, had crucified, had literally pierced the Son of God. But why did the apostles go to Jerusalem first? Repentance and remission of sins, says Christ, should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. As though Christ had said, my my aim and my intention is that all of the nations would hear that through me, a crucified and now living Christ, remission and full forgiveness is available. But begin, begin in the very city where they crucified me. Begin with the very ones who cried his blood be on us and on our children. I desire that you would go to them first. To the very city that was stained with mine own blood. Go to them. That they might have forgiveness. We are a dull people, aren't we? Beloved, what you find in this text is that even those who pierced Christ, the Lord God would have them called. The Lord Jesus would have them called and fall under the earshot of this gospel. And that should make us marvel, should it not, that that even, as John Bunyan put it, the Jerusalem sinner should be saved. Beloved, who is in this text? Again, I I side with those who see that the words here in this text are literally fulfilled in the first century, but, but figuratively they are fulfilled from the fall all the way to the consummation. A beloved, everyone who is a hater of God is a deicide at heart in God's account. In other words, when God looks at you and he looks at me in our natural condition, when he looks at our hearts that are disposed against his sovereignty, against his holiness, against his goodness, that then God says, this one would kill me if he could. And yet the Lord says he would have mercy upon those who were his piercers in heart. Those who would sin against even the good things that he's given them. Who would sin against the mercies that he's provided. Oh, beloved, we're told that even such as they are offered remission and full forgiveness through Christ. And that a number of them 
beloved, will be indeed objects of this mercy. Have we spurned the preaching of Christ? In God's account, if we've done so, beloved, we are guilty as those who have consented to his death. As I said last time we were together, beloved, if we profess falsely, that is, if we make a profession with our lips for Christ, but live, live as we list, the Spirit of God in his word by his apostle says that we are only crucifying afresh the Son of God. And so, beloved, this text holds out not just that the first century Jew, not just that the first century Roman, who literally pierced the Son of God, needed this grace. But, beloved, you and I, in a sense, are in this text. We are deicides at heart. Have we spurned the preaching of Christ? Have we been those who have made a profession with our lips, but with our hearts have been far from the Lord? We need this Christ. And what is so striking, beloved, about this text is the parallel that you can draw very easily, very easily with the prodigal son. When the prodigal son went to his father and he asked for his inheritance, beloved, make no mistake, that was... That was not simply a desire to live as he might with the wealth that he could gain. That was really a statement to his father. I wish you were dead. Your riches and your goodness to me are more important than yourself. Beloved, those who have such hearts for the Lord are not far to find. Not hard to find at all. They are those who indeed are piercers of the Lord, at least in heart. And so, Christian, as we close, hearer as we close, do you see yourself in the text? Do you see yourself in the text? Beloved, we should. It's right and it's necessary that we do. But it's also important that we understand that not all those who are piercers are saved. Not all of those who have pierced him will come to him by faith. But even as we remember that, beloved, all who are saved, all who are saved, were once piercers, none excluded. And so all are in this text who are in Christ. And so, Christian, the question, first of all, as we're called to make our calling and election sure, as we're to examine ourselves before we come to the table, the question is, do you mourn? As you see this text so vibrantly set the pattern before us, You know, that phrase that's repeated again and again toward the end of chapter 12 is that they would mourn apart. That is, the head of the home would mourn, but their wives would mourn. And that these families would mourn, but they would mourn apart. What's the sense really behind that? The sense is so very simple. The sense is that nobody here upon whom this grace has been poured 
is coming in, as it were, on the back of somebody else's faith. They are all mourning individually. This grace has fallen upon them all individually and in such a way that they do mourn. And so, beloved, that's simply the pattern for us. If this grace has come upon us, we are necessarily mourners. We look upon sin as a kind of piercing of the Lord. We see ourselves in need of the self-same grace that the Jerusalem sinner required. But Christian, you who look, it's so very crucial to this text. As you remember, Zechariah is preaching to remind them of God's gracious disposition to the church. It's so very necessary that we remember, even now, that this grace that is described before, this gracious intention and inclination that was already, already elaborated on, is a grace that falls even on great sinners, even on those whom he describes here as his piercers. Again, beloved, it's not hard for us to turn back then to the prodigal, the, son, the prodigal son. Because there you find the Lord describing redemption in this way. That the father runs and embraces his penitent son. There is no doubt in the text, is there, that there is a real and a gracious design in the heart of the father for the son. And so Christ and this prophecy itself would have us not doubt that either. There is a spirit, there is an inclination of grace, there are bowels of mercy in the Lord. Even, beloved, for the greatest sinners among his people. See, beloved, the prodigal father, the prodigal's father rushing to meet him. See, beloved, the Lord rushing to meet his own. In mercy. And so the exhortation from this text is, is quite straightforward. Beloved, you and I are supposed to see that there is more mercy in him, both in fact and in intention. There is more grace that is unfathomed. There is simply more, more, more in God than, beloved, you and I could ever know. There is a deeper love in the heart of God than we could ever fathom. And so, come. He calls you to himself this morning. To come. As the apostle would say to the church at Corinth, beloved, so our text says about the Lord himself, his bowels are not straightened. He is disposed graciously to all who look to Christ, that they indeed would come. Beloved, and that they would come to the table today and feed upon Christ in a way new, in a way more deeply than they have before. And even for those who are outside of Christ, beloved, the offer is well meant. The cry is still to come. And to see that bowels of mercy are still for such sinners. And so come. Amen.
We come to the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And at this time, I would ask if the elders would come forward. And as, as the session is making their way to the front, I'll read to you once more the terms of communicant membership. I accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only Redeemer of men, supreme in church and state, and in dependence on divine grace. I take him as my Savior and Lord. I promise by divine grace to show a teachable and submissive spirit to the teaching of the Holy Scripture as set forth in the testimony the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. I promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit, I will endeavor to live a life consistent with my profession. And so we come then to the words of institution. I've received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, this same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Beloved, the warning in this text, the admonition is for a man to examine himself. All who would come and to sit at this table are called to examine. And the reason that the apostle cites for that is because those who come without discerning the Lord's body are right. Those who do not, in other words, come with saving faith, he says here, are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They are in a fresh sense, in an aggravated way, they are become the Lord's piercers anew. In God's account, no less guilty than those who pierced Christ at Calvary. It's the very language of the text. And so, beloved, it is truly indispensable to come to the ordinance with faith, a saving faith that is fixed upon a slain and a risen Christ. And for those who don't, beloved, they are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Why? Because, friend, what could be more Judas-like today than to come to an ordinance that is an expression of love, a table over which the Lord has set a banner of love, and yet in the heart still be a hater of the Lord? There is nothing more Judas-like that is possible in our day, and to come unworthily to the Lord's Supper. 
But for those who are possessed of a real faith, beloved, there is a call. A call to come to the table. To take hold of Christ. To take hold of Christ by faith. Because, beloved, in these things, signed and sealed to you are the unimaginable, the inestimable riches that are found in Christ. What is signed and signified in this table is beyond our comprehension and depth. And beloved, there are many who come to a table today unthinking. Even Christians who come limiting the hand of the Most High, thinking that these things could not do them such great good that the Lord may indeed do for them through it. And so we are to come in faith. As we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to straighten the hand of God at all, but to come believingly, to come humbly. And so all who take hold of Christ, all all who have met with session previously, or our communicant members are certainly invited to come. We take up our soldiers and turn to Psalm Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 26 to 28. Psalm 22, verses 26 to 28. We stand to praise God and... If those who will be coming forward in the first sitting would do so as we sing, uh, we will sing verses 26 to 28 in praise to God. Let's stand to praise the Lord.
In Luke's Gospel, we're told that as Christ prepared to eat with his own um, and the last Passover and also the institution of the Lord's Supper, he said, with desire have I desired uh, this meal. And beloved, what of course Christ was communicating was that he had a real and an earnest desire to be with his people, to be with his people at this table, a table that would hold out to them the benefits that are only to be found in Christ, to hold out to them in ways sensible and in ways real, his dying love. And beloved, we know that that desire is not just restricted to the apostles in the first century. It's something that goes right through the history of the church. And we know that because the supper has been instituted by Christ himself. The same Christ who said, with desire have I desired to eat with his own, is the same Christ who commanded that the supper would be observed by his people until he comes again. And so, Christian, as you look to Christ by faith, you're to recognize that you come so warmly invited. You come to feed upon these sensible elements, but you come to feed upon Christ by faith in this special way because Christ has desired you to do so. And so, following his pattern and according to his own word, we're told in the scriptures that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do. Remembrance of me. Let's come once more to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. Our blessed and our eternal God, we do praise and we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has instituted instituted the means of grace that we enjoy. We thank you, Father, for the word that holds out to us Christ so conspicuously. It holds before us dying love, a living intercessor, and a God who delights in mercy. And so, Father, we come asking that you would bless us now as we sit at this table. Father, we pray that we would do so as those lowly of heart, Do so as those mourning for sin, but do so also as those who have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness toward them through Christ, who are looking to Christ by faith, who long to commune with him even here. And so, Lord, bless, we pray. Bless, Bless these elements to their sacramental use and bless us by fixing our gaze upon Christ even now. As we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come.
We resume in praise to God by taking up our psalters, turning back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verses 29 to the end. We'll stand to praise the Lord. Psalm 22 verses 29 to the end. Perhaps, beloved, you've looked at Zechariah 12 and you've seen yourself in the text as we should. And of course, the question is if the Spirit of God has, like Nathan before, cried, Thou art the man. That yes, he was wounded for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities. That yes, you were once a hater of God, a deicide at heart. Beloved, you should also remember that this text holds out to us the Lord's real and gracious intention, even to such as we are. Those who are unworthy of the least of God's mercies those who have sinned against light and against love. And that this table is a sign and a seal of that very fact, that our Lord is pleased to save great sinners and to save them to the uttermost because in him is plenteous redemption. And so looking to Christ by faith, beloved, even the piercers of the Lord have great and unsearchable things held out to them here, signed and sealed in the sacrament. And so come with a faith unfeigned in Christ. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after Christ's pattern, let's return to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. 
our blessed and eternal God, we come so very mindful that there is nothing in our flesh that is good. That all that is good is only provided by grace. That if we are made lovers of God who are once haters, it is because of the grace of God. If we were a people unclean but now have been made clean, it is because of the grace of our God. If we are a people whose hands were crimson stained, but now are made as white as snow and even as wool, it is because of that fountain that has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. O Lord God, we come, pleading that you would indeed cleanse us, pleading that by faith you would fix us upon Christ and upon every benefit found in him. And, O Lord, we pray then that you would take up these means, means of your own institution, to draw us ever closer to Christ, that we might give up those wells that can hold no water, those broken cisterns, that we might leave the waters of Sihor and and leave all of the, the false hopes and saviors of the world. That we might cling to him, who indeed is living water and the heavenly manna. Lord, fix us upon Christ, we pray. Bless, Father, we ask as we sit in the sacramental moment that we might do so with a real faith fixed upon the Lord. And so, Father, bless these means to that heavenly end. So we ask all together with the pardon of our many sins. In Jesus' name, amen. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. As we've been meditating this morning, our text holds before us that Christ is pleased in his mercy and his grace to save even those whom he knew were haters of him in his heart. And that he's even instituted means such as this, even such as this this morning, for their good. And so, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is due in remembrance of me.
After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. We close this morning by taking up our psalters once more and turning now to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, and there are verses 17 to 19. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it breathe. To the praise of our God we stand to sing Psalm 72, verses 17 to the end. Please remain standing for the prayer and the benediction. Eternal and ever-blessed God, we come, Father, thankful that you've laid help on a strong one, 
Christ, the strong man, has spoiled the house of the devil. That he has taken captive all manner of souls who were once rightly under the dominion of sin and of death, under the curse of the law. Father, we rejoice that such grace is known among men. We rejoice that signed and sealed to us even this morning was the salvation of souls. Every soul that looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we are so thankful that your word holds out to us our God who is really inclined toward his people in grace. And that that inclination as well as the grace itself is beyond our fathoming. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, as we leave this place this morning, that we be mindful not only of the gift, but even of the intention behind it. That the Lord God would indeed do good to poor and to hell-deserving sinners such as we. And that from a a deep love, a free love, And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, let us depart to this place with our gaze indeed fixed upon Christ and the love of God as it is so conspicuously revealed in him. Pardon, we pray, our many sins. And we ask, Father, that the vows that we have renewed this day, the solemn obligations that we've come under once again, as well as the blessed hope and those promises signed and sealed to us afresh. Father, we pray that these things would linger with us long and indeed would be used to conform us more into Christ-likeness. For this we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. And receive now the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.